Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. We're a collective of scholars who care about the connection between biblical studies and theology. I want to give special thanks to the team that helps produce and develop OnScript, including Mim Ward on creative design, and I'll let the others introduce themselves here. I'm James Steinbach, Web Development. Rebecca Turhian, Media and Marketing. I'm Ed Hackey, and I produce the show. If you haven't yet done so, please log into your MySpace account and share the word about OnScript. If for some reason you don't have a MySpace account, where have you been? Um, but uh, anyway, you can share the word on whatever media platform you use to socialize online. And you could also share the word by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. So welcome to OnScript. This is Chris Tilling with Andrew Rilera. And now in a couple of recent-ish interviews, I've asked some scholars about their forthcoming work, positioning us on the cutting edge of the cutting edge, so to speak. So in similar vein today, I want to introduce to you an exciting up-and-coming New Testament scholar from whom I have already learned a lot. Um, the reason for this is that my guest is a member of, uh, well, it was a Jensen reading group. Now it's a Bart reading group led by a mutual friend. This is one of the good things um, about lockdown and we're doing a lot of things on Zoom is that I can meet up with friends scattered across the four corners of the world. And um, even though Andrew is in a, a based in the US, um, we have these weekly get-togethers and I have so enjoyed his input in those meetings. And as I listened to him, as we chatted, I just wanted to bottle something of that and share it for OnScript listeners. So, Andrew Rilera is a PhD candidate in New Testament at Duke University and an adjunct professor at Eternity Bible College. He co-wrote a book with Preston Sprinkle called Fight, A Christian Case for Nonviolence um, in 2013. And he's now finishing his dissertation on Paul's interlocutor in Romans. He has an article in the Journal of Biblical Literature on Daniel 7 and a forthcoming article in Biblical Research on Ephesians 2 and is under contract with Cascade for a book on sacrifice and sacrificial imagery applied to Jesus in the New Testament. And we're going to be talking about some of the themes um, that are already in that biography. Anyway, um, Andrew, welcome to On Script. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. I'm delighted to be here before I've even had a script, so to speak, to uh, talk about. And publish. Well, I, I forgot to mention that, you know, you grew up as a Jehovah Witness, um, that you um, that you consider yourself now a recovering evangelical um, and you worship in the Anglican tradition. So definitely saved is, is the hope there anyway. Um, but perhaps you could say something about your, your story and, and particularly, you know, the Jehovah Witness background sounds fascinating. How has that shaped you? Sure. Oh, 
She's shaped me in a lot of ways. I don't want to get too lost down that uh, hole. Um, well, if, if you don't know much about uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, basically to, uh, to kind of break it down is they are modern day Aryans. And Arius is a famous uh, or infamous rather probably uh, heretic. Um, who denied the deity of, of Jesus. Jesus was the first created uh, being by the Father, according to Arius. And Jehovah's Witnesses kind of take up this mantle with respect to Jesus. Um, and so they, they deny the Trinity. Um, and the Holy Spirit, um, likewise, um, isn't even uh, a person, let alone God. For them, it's very similar to like a Star Wars the Force. Uh, they, call it, they call it the Holy Spirit uh, the active force. So those are some of the big, I mean, there's a lots of stuff going on there. Those are some of the big uh, differences between all the variations of, you know, creedal Orthodox Christianity and Jehovah's, Jehovah's Witnesses. But for me, um, coming to see through my, my mom, who herself grew up uh, Jewish, uh, in a Reformed Jewish household, she then later became a Jehovah's Witness and then later became a uh, Christian. And kind of happening alongside my mom's own spiritual journey was a divorce from uh, my father. And putting, you know, the, the, the trauma, the, all that stuff going on uh, with divorce uh, to the side for a moment, there was another theological trauma that I, I had to reckon with at a really young age. So my parents were divorced around the age uh, of four, but... As I, you know, was growing up um, and, and trying to figure out what's going on, uh, one of the the biggest things that uh, was a problem for me was I have my mom and my dad now representing two whole communities of people, both believing that the Bible is the Word of God, and yet coming to drastically different conclusions uh, about its meaning and interpretation, about their view of God, about all sorts of things. So I had to reckon with that in my formative years um, ab about how Scripture isn't as inherently transparent as many people say it is, right? So from within your particular tradition, you think, well, of course, the Bible says this X, Y, Z, right? Well, I had to live personally with two people, you know, uh, working through that. So that formed me because I was now uh, invested. I mean, I get, this could have gone either way. I have two older brothers who um, completely, because of this experience, um, have no, no sort of interest in hashing this, this theological stuff out. They're just kind of uh, agnostic. Uh, but for me, it, it drove me to uh, study and learn, and I wanted to figure out what's going on here. So uh, how does this happen <laughs> to people, you know? Uh, and then as I grow up, it's like, oh, this happens all over the place. There's traditions and denominations, like, you know, um, but I was kind of alerted to that at a very young age. And so that's kind of informed my interest in biblical studies and theology. And I've just kind of kept going because I still have questions. I'm still curious yeah. So it's almost as if your spiritual genealogy is fairly atypical, really led you to the place of recognizing that there is no straightforward relationship between what we believe and the Bible. And this propelled you into 
to academic work. And perhaps you could tell us something about your your academic background and key influences and um, what inspired you to get involved with the Apostle Paul in particular. I've had a number of great uh, mentors and, and currently and still still talking with them. The one who's had the most impact on me in terms of length would be uh, Samir Yadav, who is a professor of theology at Westmont currently, but he um, was my professor when I was at a small Bible college that now I, I teach uh, some classes for, uh, Eternity Bible College. And he really um, opened my eyes to different ways of reading and interacting uh, with the Bible. And uh, from there, I went on to Fuller and uh, studied a lot with Tommy Givens and Joel Green and Marianne Thompson. And um, it was, I think, I went to Fuller because th those New Testament scholars um, were appreciative of the work of N.T. Wright, but were also cr critical of, of his, his work in, in some, what I think are um, pretty, pretty good pushbacks. But I was, I basically had N.T. Wright tattooed on my arm as an undergrad. And um, I knew from, you know, the more I read, the more I, I, I realized um, that I could be, you know, walking into the same trap of just like, well, I see this so clearly, this must be, you know, the way it is. And I wanted to be able to interact and, and, and uh, work out what I thought in the context of, of people who were uh, appreciative of, of his, of his insights. And, but yet at the same time, able to see things from different perspectives, because that's what I think is really the, at its best, ideally scholarship is, is people noticing different stuff at this, you know, and, and presenting that to one another. And ideally we can kind of connect these dots, you know, everyone to bring in certain observations and, uh, trying to, uh, help, help the church. Um, you know, that's, that's, I think key is all these, all the mentors I've had have been scholars who, um, are deeply invested in the upbuilding of the church and the formation of, of faithful disciples and trying to work out how the Bible relates, uh, to that, uh, end. And so getting into Paul was, I took a class on Judaism and Jewish Christian relations at Fuller. And I had already been primed for a lot of the insights I, I learned from that class through my in, engagement and, and learning from Joel Green and, and uh, Marianne Thompson and, and Tommy. And what I began to become uncomfortable with was um, supersessionist supersessionism as a sort of unacknowledged lens through which a lot of Pauline scholarship was was being uh, that was just like ground level. Perhaps you um, could sort of de define supersessionism as well, just in oh, case. Oh, sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so supersessionism, in brief, is is the belief that um, the church in one way or another, and that's key, there's different forms of it, uh, supersedes Israel um, as God's people. And uh, Kendall Sullen, I would direct people to, uh, he's a theologian at Emory. Um, he has a, a book 
the God of Israel in Christian theology? He outlines... This is the uh, lockdown effect. This is the COVID effect, I think. I, the number of times I'm trying to remember a detail and it's just not there. So I'm with you on this one. Yes, I'm glad it's not just out. me. I'm going to blame anything on the COVID blob that I am current, we all are currently inhabiting. There's two forms of supersessionism that someone uh, kind of outlines. Uh, punitive supersessionism, economic su supersessionism. And a lot of scholars have jettisoned the punitive uh, supersessionism, which is namely Jews killed Jesus, therefore as retribution, as punishment, God has abandoned them. Uh, but there's this economic supersessionism at work where it's more or less assumed that if you're a baptized Jew, uh, you have to abandon Judaism to be a faithful Christian. You effectively have to do the opposite of Judaize for Gentiles, you know, becoming Jewish. They do the opposite. And what it means to be a faithful Jew is to Gentilize, you know, to put it weirdly. Um, and I began to see through this class uh, with uh, Jen Rosner a lot of problematic uh, assumptions at the textual and historical level of Paul that actually questioned a lot of that. So that's actually what the article on Ephesians 2 that's coming out soon with biblical research is me working out is a, is a key text, a Pauline text that that supposedly is about the supersession of the of the law of Israel uh, and being replaced in the church. And I, so I take a uh, hard look at that and come to, you know, a, a non-supersessionist reading. So what, what I started to wonder is, okay, which texts are, is a lot of the supersessionism, where, where are they located? There's a lot less going for the supersessionist, but either of them argument than I had assumed. And so how is this being powered and energized by certain uh, New Testament texts? Now that I've gone and looked at some of them, and other scholars have done as well, I'm I'm sort of kind of slowly chipping away at that and to see, you know what? I think a, a non-supersessionist reading is actually warranted in certain texts, like just for historical exegetical reasons. So I'm not offering necessarily a, just like a, um, what some biblical scholars are uncomfortable with is like a, a post-Holocaust reading where we just have to pretend that the supersessionism doesn't exist, or we just kind of like, uh, uh, you know, just uh, den deny it or revoke it or something. I want to look at that and say, actually, I don't, I'm not so sure it was actually there in, in these certain texts. And so uh, that, that kind of sent me into uh, applying to Duke. Uh, I was originally going to keep pressing in on that question with Ephesians to work with uh, Douglas Campbell and Susan Eastman and Ross Wagner, who in their own ways have, uh, in their published work, questioned uh, a, a kind of supersessionist interpretation of, of key texts in Paul. And so I knew that, that was a good fit to kind of press into this. And um, what happened was I, I stumbled upon some other research that uh, took me out of Ephesians, and now I'm in Romans, which is another very difficult text. And I, so I, I, I kind of kept pulling at a thread, and I accidentally you know, happened. I, I think going in there, I would never want to do what I was doing back then, but I kept yanking at these certain threads that uh, we'll be talking about, and I kind of just fell into it. So, Well, maybe we can talk a little bit about Romans, and obviously Douglas Campbell may be familiar to our on-script listeners. He's been on, um, on here before. Perhaps the most controversial aspect of his reading of Romans or his rereading of Romans is, is the Socratic 
account he gives in Romans particularly 1 to 3, right? So you've got 118 to 32, which is the opening salvo of the Jewish Christian countermissionaries as he presents it, which then Paul sort of teases out and deconstructs in what follows. And now, of course, I think I think this is this isn't simply delete stuff from Paul's letters, as I've heard it said, but nonetheless, it's very controversial. And one of my own colleagues, Sarah Kassiners, picked up on the use of gar, um, um, often glossed as four or something like that, um, particularly in, in Romans 17 and then 18, um, in order to make the case that Campbell's argument doesn't stack up. You can't possibly have somebody, um, uh, Paul, quoting, in inverted commas, someone who he's about to deconstruct, given the way that it's presented. But I know you've done some very important work in all of this, and um, it'll be hitting hitting the shelves, no doubt, before too long, once you've gotten through the whole PhD process. But I'd love to hear, um, what are your emerging thoughts about all of this? Yeah, hopefully the goal is I should be defending this summer, so I'm kind of wrapping up. To, to kind of set the context a little bit broader. Scholars agree that Paul does this in 1 Corinthians all over the place. Um, he'll, he will quote from the Corinthians and often the commentators will call it like a Corinthian slogan or something like that. And what's interesting about these is they, they don't come introduced with what, what I've been calling um, in, in the dissertation uh, a verb of saying or speaking. Like, and then someone will say or then someone says or responds or answers, something like that. Those verbs um, don't occur at these places, but yet scholars have still been able to recognize that there's something, there's too much contradiction going on in the text to where the, the way to make the best sense of this is to postulate, well, what if, what if Paul's quoting from the very thing he's about to then object to and, and argue against? And uh, in, intuitively, a lot of scholars who, who have picked up on this haven't done the primary source research that I'm doing in the front part of my dissertation. And that's not a knock on them because I, I, I'm just saying, like, it's what I'm trying to say by this is that a lot of this is actually intuitive across human cultures. Stand up comedians do this a lot. Um, you change your vo vocal inflection, and they have these diet, these speeches in character with themselves or, you know, for the audience. And this sort of performance was, was expected for, um, epistles that were basically written speeches. We have plenty Cicero talking about this and how they go through revisions and practice runs and the, the, the role of the letter carrier. And if they're not the reader, you know, Peter Head's done some, uh, um, very good work on, on letter carriers and uh, whether the letter carrier is the reader or not, they are definitely tasked with instructions for how to clarify the communication event that's going on through the, through the epistle. Right. So a lot of the stuff is going to be audible to the audience through uh, vocal inflection, intonation. This is all stuff that they learn from the elementary age in, in education and in, in what I go through in the, in, the pro gymnasmata, uh, like it's like elementary school training all the way up to the, they're like college level rhetorical handbooks and they're practicing how to, how to use this skill in, in their speeches. And then when they're readers, so when they're reading text, learn and reading is a public activity. You're doing it before an audience. You have to learn how to inflect. So what, what I'm trying to flag is that scholars without all of that 
you know, some of some of them do bring it up, but without diving deep into these rhetorical sources, examples of of speech and character, um, and all that, it's just sort of intuitive to 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 encounter contradictions in a text and go, okay, I'm probably what I'm probably witnessing isn't some like wildly incoherent speaker, but what I'm encountering is two sides of a debate. What I think is one of the most interesting recent uh, applications of this and uh, also building on Campbell's work is uh, Lucy Pepiot's work on first Corinthians 11 and first Corinthians 14. Again, she's not getting into a lot of the nitty gritty that hopefully I'll be able to sum up for you all here in terms of the ancient sources. But one thing I wanted to flag for this is that if you're unfamiliar with 1 Corinthians 11, it's the head covering passage. And to really simplify, Pepiot's argument is that the people advocating for head coverings are the Corinthians and that that's the very thing Paul is actually rejecting. If, if anyone's interested, you know, in looking into that more about how Paul's not actually the one advocating for head coverings, that that's actually the position he's arguing against, I don't want to get down that uh, for myself because it's, it's a wonderful argument presented by um, Dr. Pepiot, and it's women in worship at Corinth, Paul's rhetorical arguments in 1 Corinthians. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because it's, it's landed well with certain scholars, you know, well-respected scholar like Scott McKnight, who in his foreword for another book by Pepiot called uh, Rediscovering Scripture's Vision for Women, Fresh Perspectives on Disputed Texts. In that foreword, Scott McKnight says how he's convinced by Pepiot's scripting there of 1 Corinthians 11. He, he writes this explicitly. And now, okay, why does this matter for what I'm doing? Well, the way it's scripted, according to Pepiot, is there's two gar transitions. Meaning, if you go look, if you, if you know Greek or, or whether you don't, doesn't matter. If you, if you read First Corinthians 11, the reason this is debated is because there's no verbs of saying. There's Paul's never saying, you say this and then I say this. Uh, but there's other signals. And this is what we'll try to get into, not for First Corinthians, but for Romans. But the way Pepiot has, has scripted this dialogue, there's... There's two transitions from what the Corinthians are saying to what Paul is saying back to the Corinthians that have gars there. And I think this is just a caution again, going back to my Jehovah's Witness background. If the gar is not a hindrance because it helps us, but we'll just say a less misogynistic Paul. I don't want to get, I, I mean, it's hard to please everyone when what you say uh, is Paul misogynist or not. I guess it's a spectrum. Um, but in this passage, Paul is, according to Pepiot, liberating. When you like that, that serves your theological interests. Because like me, I'm for women's ordination, for women preaching, all this stuff. When Gar is not a problem, because, it, because you like the theological conclusions coming out of it, but then all of a sudden it's a problem because we're making an argument about what's going on in Romans and that undercuts some other theological uh, sacred cow you would like to hold on to. I think that just illustrates how a lot of times what what can be seen as objections or just kind of a, a not just don't even need to mention it. Like who cares? This doesn't even why uh, no, no one's made a fuss about the gars in in First Corinthians eleven. I, I think the reason there's uh, resistance in general to Campbell's uh, reading of Romans 
is because it's been a major theological touchstone and passage for a whole system of theology and Christianity. And whether to my advantage or disadvantage, my shakeup out of being a Jehovah's Witness and then into a fundamentalist Christian environment to whatever in the world I am now, I, I'm used to having big uh, paradigm shifts. In fact, a lot of the stuff that I've written and published or I'm trying to publish that stuff that's in the pipeline are basically notes to myself, convincing myself of a position that I used to not think. And this is why I think, oh, this is worthy of getting out there because, you know, like I, I've learned something. And so I, I just throw that out there because I think it, 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 we need to really wrestle with why are we, why are we affirming or rejecting a position? Is it really down to the exegesis and the history or is it, serving some other theological reason, which again, this is why I'm interested in all this. And I, I do think there, uh, this is what I'm doing, right? I'm doing a historical uh, reconstruction of a text for my dissertation. So I do think there's a lot of value there, but I, I'm also very aware that um, no one, not even myself can have a purely objective reason, reason. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe you can broaden, broaden your argument a little bit more and tell us what you're doing with the transition in Romans two one, um, you know, what what are your other arguments that are developing and perhaps pushing back on on some of Douglas Campbell's views? The the transition in Romans two one, you kind of almost have to have the text in front of you to see. Yeah, it. well, should um, I, I'll read out the NRSV right. if you like. Or do you want to do you want to do you want to oh, get yeah, it? Yeah, you, you do it. You do it. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, this is of course the NRSV, and there's some problems with this, but therefore, this is the deal. Therefore, you have no excuse, this is whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. Now, of course, this comes off the back of 118 to 32. Um, so what can you tell us about this particular uh, transition here? What's going on? How Help us to understand this. So what Romans 2.1 is in rhetorical terms is called an apostrophe, a turn away from, a turn to address someone, something else. Now, apostrophes have a variety of functions in ancient Greek literature. Uh, but we just need to note that. This is an apostrophe. Paul's addressing someone. So he's, he's, and he's identifying them and characterizing them as a certain, in, in certain terms. And so we'll get to that in a second. But he's addressing someone and characterizing them as a judger and of a judger, not just in general, but of a judger of, of people who do specific things. So we have an apostrophe, and we have a characterization, and it's we have a key Greek word right at the beginning, dia, which means therefore, for this reason, basically. Okay, so that, that's our data. If we back up a, a second and look at, um, I just kind of have to summarize this, but this is in the rhetorical handbooks like rhetorical adherenium, uh, quintilian, the, those are like the higher level uh, rhetorical um, instruction manuals. And then you have the elementary school, basically, the, the pro gymnasmata by Theon, uh, pseudo-hermogenes, and these span centuries. So the reason, uh, the dates of these texts, the reason that's important is to show how consistent uh, these conventions are for speech and character and how to identify it and how to write it. So this is a consistent thing predating Paul to post Paul. It's a very stable convention in, in the Greco-Roman world for how to do this. And so here's kind of the, what needs to happen for a, uh, a student 
or uh, an author, someone learning to write these things, needs to provide in order to signal that a speech and character is, is happening. It, another, another speaker needs to be identified. Another speaker needs to be characterized as a hero, as a coward, as a philosopher, or as a judger, something like that. And then all the attributed speech to that interlocutor, the fancy word for it, the person the author's arguing with um, or co conversing with, if it's less um, polemic, uh, all speech needs to be appropriate to the character of the one speaking. So determining who's speaking, and th these are all conventions precisely because it is assumed that it's kind of clunky to say he says, she says, then I say. Instead, he just kind of glides into this verbless transition to speech and character, and that's sublime. So um, the reason uh, this convention happens, or you have these uh, conventions of we just need identification, we need characterization, then we need this criterion of appropriateness, is precisely because there's no formal structures as to the order or arrangement of speech and character with introductory verbs of speech and all this stuff. It could happen. It often, like, like it happens. that You can find plenty of examples of, of speech and character happening with these introductions. The thing is that it, that's not the, the only or the norm. And I have plenty of examples from Epictetus, Philo, the Cynic philosopher Teles, uh, Josephus, other examples in the New Testament of these sorts of verbless transitions uh, occurring, and uh, then how how to go about discerning who's speaking when. There's grammarians commenting on Homer's works. They're called scholias. Uh, and the Homeric scholia are basically the manuscripts of, of, of Homer with, with marginal notes. And they'll note when these verbless transitions happen and how to find out who, like, who's speaking. Is this Homer? Is this some other character or what? And what ends up happening is, is uh, it gets kind of uh, codified into uh, what Porphyry calls the, the solution from the character. He says, um, whenever you find uh, contradictions or different voices, which he calls diaphonia, you need to discern that you need to find the solution from the character. What's consistent with which character? And that's how you solve diaphonia. So that, that's working with this criterion of appropriateness, meaning when something's inappropriate, when something is clashing, when you find some diaphonia, seek a solution from the character. Okay, well, which... Whose character and how this is characterized, does this fit with best? Does this fit with the author or with some other character uh, going on? So you have that, that way that it's signaled in the text is diaphonia. The second way is what they call capping formula. And you can do this in various ways, meaning someone can just start a speech that wasn't introduced with a verb of saying, but then when it ends, they have a capping formula, such as thus so-and-so said. So you do it at the end. Or, this is why apostrophe was important, apostrophe is often used as a capping formula, as a way to signal the end of a speech. And so, however weird it is for us to hear, again, I think this is actually quite intuitive, and this is attested in commentators on, on 1 Corinthians, uh, but also, again, in, in oral contexts, sermons, stand-up comedians, whatever. Often, you figure out who is speaking retrospectively, on, based on some sort of capping formula. And that's often sometimes where the hook is, is you get drawn in and then bam, you realize, oh, actually that was 
said in this other persona or something like that, then it all kind of makes sense. Uh, so th- this is this is kind of pan-cultural. This, this kind of way of communicating or presenting ideas through a dialogue that sometimes you don't give an overt signal until it's ended. It, it's, it actually, I mean, it just shouldn't be controversial. This is just how many cultures work. And in particular, it's how the Greco-Roman um, curriculum stipulates that things gotta, gotta, gotta work out. So if we get rid of the GAR objection in 118 and realize, okay, this isn't evidence for or against speech and character, we got to look at the other signals. And I think the biggest signal comes in 2-1, which is where you get an apostrophe. So now you got to be asking, okay, is this a capping formula or is this just purely introductory? And you can answer that question through the criterion of appropriateness, through diaphania, finding contradictions, and by figuring out the character is how is Paul characterizing this interlocutor and which speech matches that character and which speech matches his. Now, the end result of all this isn't just the conclusion. I think that, oh, 118 to 32 is a speech and character. What I'm doing is drilling into that and saying, okay, well, who is this person? (laughs) Then how, like, does this person, is this a straw man Paul's inventing? What's going on here? How is this used in the whole argument of Romans? And does, does this have semblance with what's going on in his other letters? So kind of where I'm pushing is to eventually pick up this uh, strand in, in Roman scholarship uh, kind of headed by uh, Runar Thorsteinson and Matthew Thiessen and Rafael Rodriguez that uh, the interlocutor is actually probably a proselyte, a, a Gentile proselyte to Judaism. And I'm kind of bringing more uh, specificity to that and to say I think it's a proselyte to a a Philonic or Philo, following the teachings of Philo of of Alexandria, or at least he's the only living um, sort of textual witness to these beliefs. Um, So I think that's kind of where where I go, but I need to do a lot of work, given the criticism of Campbell's work, on merely establishing the viability of there being speech and character. And so doing that, I have to deal with the gar um, and, and I have to drill in on, on this apostrophe in, in yeah. two one. Oh, is it fair to say you think that there's a bit of a, div- a division here? Um, so you've got on the one hand, Douglas Campbell presenting the, the interlocutor as this Jewish Christian counter missionary. Um, whereas the other tradition that you mentioned with Rafael Rodriguez and others, um, pushing for a proselyte there's there's a passage of the so-called jew you know um which is of course the title of the book of the collected essays that you that you refer to whereas campbell will emphasize the so-called jew um that tradition emphasizes the so-called jew (laughs) is that a fair distinction between the two camps yeah i mean depends on how you think of how jews themselves thought of proselytes uh, were they Jews? Were they not? Uh, the interesting bit is, is in Romans two seventeen that uh, you call yourself, you call yourself a Jew, and uh, going to Galatians two, you know when he, when Paul and Peter are having a dialogue, he says we he uses the verb we are Jews who parkon we we being Jews, um, and so I I think there's some. Um, real significance that it's call yourself a Jew. Uh, and, uh, Epictetus has a very, sim- there's a similar, um, very similar wording in Epictetus about someone who calls himself a Jew, uh, but is somehow living in Epictetus mind, not quite to that 
to that standard. And whether he means, whether Epictetus means that this person is a Christian or whatever, it's all debated. But nevertheless, what we're dealing with is someone who's undergoing some sort of a ethnic transition, which that's a whole other topic. Um, but ethnicity isn't just reducible to DNA and biology uh, for the ancients. It's something that uh, it's porous and there's debates on how porous and which did everyone think that, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. Matt Thiessen would say like, you know, no, there's Jews didn't think that, you know, Gentiles could become Jews, just metaphysically impossible or something like that. Um, so I recognize that there's, there's debates, but what we, um, agree on, uh, even, even Matt, Matt Thiessen is that the person Paul's dialoguing with thinks they're a Jew, right? Uh, so that, that's kind of where, where it's going. The, the reason that matters is because we're trying to all figure out what in the world circumcision's doing, <laughs> what its use is in, in this. Uh, so, yeah, those are all things I, I eventually get into. Um, but uh, I think for, for now, just to kind of present the viability of the thesis is, you know, to focus in on those instances of verbalist transitions to, um, to undo the gar issue and then to work out the implications of what that Dia is doing in 2-1. Um, so I don't know if you wanted me to get into some of those examples with Gar, because so far, I mean, the, the scholar army is going, Andrew, you've just been making assertions. You haven't given anyone any evidence. Uh, so um, Thankfully, an on-script interview isn't an essay. It's just more of a an introduction to your, your thinking. And it's interesting to see there how you're you're developing some arguments in tandem with Campbell's position, but also... Um, moving beyond it and in a different direction as well. And I'm, I've got to say, the, the whole issue of convention was a biggie for me. I, I remember vividly my own doctoral supervisor, Max Turner, chiding me at a point where, because of my lack of appreciation for the cultural encyclopedia of the first uh, Christians, I had assumed that chiasms were effectively a modern invention and a construction, and it's just... It's just professors wanting to make a living for themselves, finding this ABBA structure all over the place. And I remember in a, in a seminar expressing my uh, snobbish disregard for such uh, attempts until he reminded me that actually this is a convention that runs deep. Children would play with chiasms on scratching them on the side of the wall. And, and to be attuned to those things made me a, a better reader of the New Testament. Now, two... The important business. This is a good time, I think, to go into the quick fire round. The Golden Corral or Five Guys? I've never been to the Golden Corral. Oh. If I have, I forgot about it. So uh, no. I'm either missing out or something. So, anyways, Five Guys by default, which I also love. So it's not just wow. by default. Well, um, listen, I mean, I know Golden Corral probably outside of North America doesn't exist, but I wish it did. I am a firm believer that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be a golden right. corral. Then I guess I guess that'll so be you, our next. You got that wrong. Is it? Anyway, let's let's move on. Hiking, holiday in the mountains, or or surfing, or doing some such at a beach. Beach. Be I'm from California. I'm from Southern yeah. California. All right, no fair that's enough. That's like that's that's home. Now, does coffee prove God's existence? Yeah, why not? Ah. Do wasps then <laughs> disprove God's existence? You know, sure. I, I'm I'm good. I'm on balance now. I hate. I mean, had a yellow jacket scare. Man, they've never seen me run so fast from spraying some or whatever the ones are that burrow underground and you have to like Ooh. foam them out. Oh, were the killer wasps near you? 
Not that was, I know of. Oh. I haven't died. No, no, no but I, don't I think, thought I, think, I heard of some killer wasps in America. Um, I so thought, what, yeah, I think they were in Washington. I could be way off. I uh, just, no, no one told me, hey, they're in North Carolina, so I haven't worried uh, about no, it. Fair enough, fair enough. So what is your favorite academic theology or biblical studies book ever? If you could just choose one or two. Uh, theology, I'm going to go with theology. And it's, um, I haven't read all of Rowan Williams, but um, almost, I, uh, anything by him that I've read. Fair enough. Uh, so Fair I'll enough. go with Christ on trial. That was very, that was, uh, for me, just impactful, uh, his enough. Christ on trial. Um, so I'm going to go with that. That's a good choice. It's a good choice. I noticed that you uh, didn't mention any of the books authored by any of us at on script, but just leaving that hanging <laughs> awkwardly for a moment. Okay, so let's let's continue. So you, you're also interested in in issues relating to wrath and how we understand sacrifice. And, you know, you've got your forthcoming book with Cascade coming out, um, touching on some of these issues. But perhaps we could b- begin with, with um, sacrifice. How has sacrifice traditionally been understood in the New Testament, appropriated? And how do you challenge this? How do you move beyond that? What are you trying to do in, y- in your forthcoming work? Yeah, so um, sacrifice and atonement issues have been... A- a hobby basically for a, a, over five years of mine, just keep reading up stuff. Um, Jacob Milgram, um, Baruch Levine, all the, all these, uh, um, different scholars on, on sacrifice and atonement and David Moffat's work on Hebrews. And basically what I've, what I've come to realize is, um, there's a lot of confusion going on when it comes to navigating, uh, what is the saving significance of Jesus's death? Now, since atonement was kind of a uh, a made-up word for the Bible to mean you know, reconciliation at one minute or something, what what it, it's supposed to be this umbrella category for saving significance of Jesus' death, whatever that means, whether that's a banking metaphor, you know, a slavery, a resurrection, some sort of something. Um, the atonement's supposed to cover all that, but what what's happened is to, atonement all often gets uh, collapsed into um, just a pure cultic meaning, meaning uh, the, the Israel sacrificial system and the kipper to translate the Hebrew word kipper to atone uh, is how a, almost every English translation I've looked up uses atone uh, um, for kipper. And so what happens is whenever there's a, someone, um, New Testament author talking about the saving significance of Jesus death, People go, oh, that's atonement. And then they also go, that equals kipper, that equals sacrifice. And so what I'm trying to do is be more precise about this and say, actually, uh, a lot of times, um, sacrificial imagery isn't even being used. This isn't, this isn't in the sacrificial register at all. And, uh, so kipper is not going on. Let's, um, let's use, um, let's use the metaphor or register that the author is using to describe how they think the saving significance of Jesus is death is being worked out. Um, so, but on, on, on that, um, Kipper is, uh, used in, in Hebrews and first John and possibly I think a few other passages, but I don't think it's the dominant, uh, theme at all. In fact, I think it's quite late developing. And that's for this, this reason is another mistake. A lot of, New Testament scholars make is not realizing that Israel's sacrificial system 
there's lots of different kinds of sacrifices, but for the sake of this conversation, there's two kinds. There's ones that, that have a kipper function and there's ones that do not have a kipper function. And the ones that do not have a kipper function are there's those subdivide, but they're, they're basically what's called the peace offerings or the well-being offerings or the fellowship offerings or communion offerings, whatever your translation saying, it's, uh, it's, it's the well-being offerings. And these interestingly are the only ones the laity may eat. When you're eating a sacrifice, you're not eating a kipper sacrifice. It has nothing to do with sins, anything like that. In fact, they're often associated with deliverance. Some sort, you know, the Passover sacrifice isn't a kipper sacrifice. It's it's a it's a deliverance sacrifice. It's a, it's a well-being sacrifice. Um, covenant inaugurations in Exodus. That this is a well-being sacrifice. You eat it. These are the two primary sacrificial images. Uh, whether you think it goes back to the historical Jesus or whatever, that both the Gospels and Paul associate Jesus with, right? A new covenant inauguration, 1 Corinthians 11, and Passover, 1 Corinthians 5. And then this is also the Lord's Supper. It happens on the Passover. He says this is the covenant, all these things. This is why they're eating. And so I think it takes a lot of theological energy to go from Jesus is a, is a well-being sacrifice with no kipper function. And we're all eating this. We're all joint participating in this and celebrating this act of deliverance um, to actually he's the sacri- He's the kipper sacrifice that not even the high priest eats. I think that takes a lot of time to work out. So I'm not discounting that, that a kipper is, is there if you want to do a new Testament theology and that there's seeds uh, kind of dribbled in there, but even Hebrews uh, says, "Hey, what I'm about to set forth, what I'm about to lay down, um, this is advanced. This is not uh, milk. This is solid food." And I think that's because he's doing something quite novel theologically. It's beautiful. I love it. And there's also what in the world is is Kipper doing? Uh, you know, um, it, it's primarily used to cleanse holy objects. And Hebrews is with this too. Jesus is going into the heavenly temple, cleaning that off. It's not something that happens to, to um, humans. They're not, it's not being, the blood's not being uh, uh, applied to humans. But anyways, I think, so those are the things I'm trying to work out is to say, okay, which passages are sacrificial and the ones that are sacrificial, are we dealing with a kipper sacrifice or are we dealing with a non-kipper sacrifice? And uh, I think for the benefit of future both exegetes and theologians is let's be more precise about what's happening in each passage so that we can, you know, do something like what Hebrews does, but in a, you know, in our own directions for our own time and things like that. Um, But let's, let's not just collapse everything into uh, if it's saving, it must be atoning. And if it's atoning, it must be Kipper. And if it's Kipper, you know, all these things. So uh, that's basically the gist of that project is trying to be more So do you have a title for the book yet? Um, It's tentatively titled uh, Lamb of the Free. Wow. Uh, I don't remember our subtitle, Uh, but it's something about rediscovering. I think it's like rediscovering the varied sacrificial images applied to Jesus or I don't know. It probably sounds better. I wish I, I wish I... I didn't, I guess I should have been prepared. You're going to ask me for the, the title of it, but yeah, lamb of the free is for sure. Kind of set in stone. We're kind of tweaking with a subtitle, something to keep our eyes on. And now I know we are running out of time, but um, it will be wonderful to hear some of your burgeoning and emerging thoughts on the issue of wrath and the judgment text in Paul. I'm famously first Corinthians 11, 28 to 32, you know, um, all about eating and drinking judgment against themselves and, 
Galatians 5.21 and similarly um, 1 Corinthians um, uh, 6, uh, 9 to 10, which is about those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Most underestimated of all is the 1 Corinthians chapter 3 passage about the day of the Lord and um, save but as though through fire famously. Um, how do we make sense of all of these passages? In a nutshell, what are you bringing to the table here? Ooh. This is this is uh, this is hard. Um, um, I mean, hard to do briefly. Um, in First Corinthians eleven, real brief. This maps on exactly to what I was. We were just talking about with the sacrifices, um, the well-being offerings. If you eat them in a state of impurity, or you wait too long, certain sacrifices you have to eat them that night. Certain sacrifices you have two days to eat it. Um, but if you eat them either when their time has expired, or in a state of impurity. You, the judgment is the karat, the cut-off judgment. And I think that's exactly what Paul is deploying there because he's talking about a non-kipper well-being offering that the Lord's Supper is. Uh, and he, this is the table of the Lord in 1 Corinthians 10. And, and he's talking about how uh, the laity participate in these sacrifices. For Israel, the only, the only sacrifices the laity is able to share in and have a share in are these non-kipper sacrifices. Uh, so the judgment there never mind all the details, but I think it's linked up to his, his Paul's notion that how he conceptualizes Jesus is as a non-kipper sacrifice. And this is why then he, he kind of plays with that and says, okay, well, if you have the leaven, right, if you, if you are doing this in some sort of unworthy manner, which in chapter 11 seems to be neglecting the poor, Paul's saying that's a state of impurity. If you eat in that state, that's akin to eating, you know, in a state of impurity, the other Israel's sacrifices well-being. So there's a judgment there. Now, uh, I'll just stick in 1 Corinthians because it, um, the passage in 1 Corinthians 6 uh, is basically parallel to Galatians. Um, and I think it will also help us understand uh, what, what Paul thinks about um, judgment in 1 Corinthians 11, which interestingly, um, he, he says, I don't have the text in front of me, but um, from memory that like you're judged so that you're not condemned. Basically, it's basically like this, that even if you die, right, uh, there's this sort of like it's a penultimate uh, judgment in the sense that he expects these people who who suffer this judgment to not be like damned for all eternity. <laughs> um, right. There's something there in first Corinthians 11. Um, and I think you can, you can see this work in first Corinthians six, five and three, if we work backwards. Um, so I know that um, this, this is going to be, this is going to be quick. You have to replay this, uh, you know, to really get what's going on to rewind it. Um, but if you were just to read first Corinthians six, nine to 10, Paul gives you a list of all these people who will not inherit the kingdom and for sake of brevity and, um, just to get get to the point, one of these pe one of these types of people that that don't enter um, the the kingdom are the what he is translated the immoral or the fornicators. It's the Greek word uh, pornoi, um, from, from where we get pornography and all that. Uh, so these immoral people, if you if you are uh, por pornos, then you don't get it. You don't. You're not inheriting the kingdom. So you think right there, easy, done. Like that's it. These people don't make it. Here we go. Well, Paul says this after he was just talking about the famous sinful pornoi, pornos, uh, the the man who is uh, sleeping with likely his his stepmother, um, who in First Corinthians five one he says he's he's guilty of pornea. This is the um, 
you know, it's, it's related to the pornos. Pornos is the person who commits pornea. Um, and uh, interestingly, Paul says, look, this guy needs a judgment. Um, but he says, I have delivered this person over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So Paul's expecting at least one guy who who was pornos to eventually make it. I mean, to, to simplify it, um, this this in, inheriting the kingdom. But he's only going to make it through a judgment, which again, working backwards, is exactly what he's just laid out in First Corinthians three uh, about a judgment through fire. And he says on this, um, he um, says, "Hey, everyone's work's going to become evident." Um, how you're building on this stuff. Um, if any, if any person's, you know, deeds are, are burned up, he's going to suffer loss, but they will be saved as first Corinthians three fifteen, uh, as though through fire. Um, so I think what, how Paul thinks of judgment is as, uh, restorative remedial there. Sin needs to be judged, but in that process of judgment, it's a fire that's, that's, that's getting rid of all this emptiness, all this dross, all this filth. And what you come out on the other side of that judgment is, uh, is saved is, and you know, this is, so he applies it to this specific person guilty of a specific sin that he then says, this doesn't, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the only other time he uses that phrase besides Galatians of it, this inheriting the kingdom of God is in first Corinthians 15, where he talks about flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And I think the same logic's at work here in terms of transformation. That is, it doesn't mean if you have flesh and blood right now, which you and I have, you will never, ever, ever inherit the kingdom of God. No, it means in order to do it, you have to undergo some sort of transformation. You need to become in the likeness of the Adam from heaven. You need to put on uh, immortality. You need to uh, put on incorruptibility. And that transformation is then, is the kind of the 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 precondition or the prerequisite of this inheritance. And so same way with this flesh, the, how Paul uses flesh, the flesh and blood uh, can't, can't inherit the kingdom, doesn't disqualify anyone who's currently flesh and blood from inheriting the kingdom, just means there needs to be a transformation. Um, for Paul, um, these sins do not uh, allow one, uh, the, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. These, I think he's saying this is, when the kingdom of God is here, these kinds of activities aren't going to be present. So if you're presently engaging in these activities, you are either going to be currently sanctified by the spirit and stop doing them now, or you're going to pass through the fire or uh, uh, hand it over to Satan. I think those probably are parallel in Paul in Paul's mind, but although the fire is... And perhaps condemned along with the world. Would that be a parallel with that as well from 1 Corinthians 11? Um, well, I think, yeah, I think he's, uh, it's, it's hard to know what Paul thinks about those outside of the church. So I'm talking about, you know, this guy's uh, ostensibly a believer, um, the, the one in first Corinthians five. Um, there's, there's a lot of, uh, 
work being being done, um, even by biblical scholars, on is is what does Paul think about those outside the church and how we can use his comments in Romans 11 to maybe work our way there. So Beverly Gaventa has recently published stuff um, on, on Romans regarding that. Uh, I think it's called When in Rome, uh, Douglas Campbell. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Thomas and Dixon his... forthcoming as well. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, I think, I think there's a lot in Paul that would, that can get someone uh, to some sort of universalism. Uh and ha- like, but it has to go through Christ. Has to go through this judgment. So, uh, uh, at the very least, um, what we see just in his pastoral work in Corinth, he's looking at an unrepentant person engaging in pornea, and he still has hope for him. So, at the very least, I think that's an attitude we ought to adopt. Is Paul's uh, say, I don't know. Uh, it's kind of a cautious optimism. He's not saying there's no judge. Everything has to be judged. Everything has to be purged, but he is hopeful that this person will be saved on that day. Well, thank you. I mean, but you've really treated us. I mean, you've taken us through some of the cutting edge scholarship across Romans and gotten uh, with some detail into some of the conventions um, that Paul was apparently adopting. You've taken us through some different understandings of, of, uh, or rather how we can misunderstand by using the word atonement and then wrath and judgment. Um, you've also said that you've never gone to golden corral, which is, my greatest which sin. is breaking my heart. You need to do this. You need to do this for me when, when it's all done. And then you will see that this is worth your time and that you need to repent on the whole Five Guys thing. But I hold out hope for you, just as Paul did. Um, thank you so much, um, Andrew, for, for your time today on, on Script. It was an absolute delight. I'm so thrilled that we could, I could bottle you and, and put you out there for the OnScript listeners to enjoy you. Um, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure having you. Oh, thank you. It's, it's a wonderful privilege to be able to get kind of the, some nice nuggets of my work out there. Um, it's not something a lot of us at my stage get to do, so I'm very thankful for the opportunity. Thank you. Well, this was um, Chris Tilling with Andrew Rilera on OnScript. Wishing you all a very good day. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.